I want to start by asking you this morning whether an experience has ever happened to you that has happened to me. Have you ever finished reading a book, watching a film, and your response immediately when you get to the end is, I'm confused. I'm confused. What, what just happened? Maybe it'll be a thriller kind of film or a detective type film and you get to the end and you say, I need to watch that at least two more times before I have any idea what just happened. In other words, there is something about a writer or about a film director that they like to leave you hanging. They like you to say, I need to go back and watch that again if I'm really going to understand what happened. And what I want to suggest this morning and why I start here is because we're just finishing up in Revelation 22, one of the greatest dramas that has ever been written. Now, of course, we could talk more broadly about the Bible. We've talked before. My father used to like to talk about the great drama of redemption that God has written from the beginning of human history now to the end. But we're also coming to the end of this book of Revelation. And this book of Revelation almost feels like more dramatic, a more dramatic film than Hollywood could even dream up. We read of beasts and we read of these fantastic creatures and we read of plagues and these marvelous events that are coming ahead, some in judgment and some in salvation. And then as we've been studying over the last several weeks, just in Revelation 21 and 22, this picture of this new heaven and new earth and this picture of this holy city Jerusalem coming down for God's people to dwell in. And we see the size of it 1,400 miles that way and 14 1,400 miles that way and 1,400 miles that way and our minds are blown by it and maybe some of us have, th- have sat here and thought, is this real or is this just like Hollywood? Is this really going to apply to me? Is this going to affect my life? Well, Jesus wants to be clear about something. He wants to be clear that he doesn't want to leave you hanging when it comes to the end of the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, or the end of this subject of what heaven, this new heaven and new earth is going to be like. He doesn't want mystery or drama. He wants to tell you. And why I say that is because at the end of this book of Revelation, at the end of all the Bible, who is the one speaking? Jesus is the one speaking. It's as if, if you can imagine this film that has left you confused and you say, I need to watch that again. And suddenly as the credits roll and they stop, you see the director emerge from behind the camera and he says, let me explain to you how this affects your life. Let me tell you the message that I'm trying to communicate to you in this film. And then you say, oh, I get it. Jesus steps out, if you will, from behind the camera. He looks at all of us and he says, I'm talking to you. This isn't a story for some distant off time in the future that won't be practically relevant for you. This is not some mystery in the past that simply has passed its time and no longer speaks to you today in 21st century Minneapolis. 
Jesus says this message is for all of us. And notice, if you will, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them. If you have them on a device, to look at it together so we can look at this passage together. Revelation 22 and verse 12, Jesus says, And behold, I come, or I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Every man, every person includes every person who's sitting here this morning. Every person means every person who will live until Jesus returns. And every person means every person who has ever lived before. Jesus wants us to say, this is relevant to me. The title of the message this morning is simply Christ's Final Message. Christ's final message. This is the end of our Bibles. This is Jesus' last message. He has never spoken in inspired revelation after this chapter. The canon of the Bible closed. Jesus wanted to leave us with one more message. So let's figure out what that message is, right? And let's understand how it applies to our life. Three very simple points for us this morning. First, the speaker. Second, the message. And third, the invitation. The speaker, the message, the invitation. First, let's talk about the speaker. I've already said who the speaker is. It's Jesus. He's the one who has appeared to John. Now, who was John? John was one of Jesus' disciples when Jesus physically lived here on earth. But John just wasn't any of the disciples. John was one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. In other words, if you had said of Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was born about 2,000 years ago and lived and died on a cross and was raised again, if you said of Jesus who were his best friends on earth, John would have been one of them. Okay, so this is one of his best friends who is telling us what Jesus told him. John is on an island. He has been exiled. He has been sent off as a punishment for teaching the things of Jesus Christ. They have arrested him. They've sent him to an island and says, you live here. And Revelation tells us at the beginning of this book that, at, that as John is on this island, Jesus appears to him. But he doesn't appear to him in a body that John knew before. It's this glorious body that causes John, one of his best friends on earth, to fall down on his face before him as if he were dead. Jesus appears to him and now Jesus brings out this revelation to him of what is coming in the future and what is the message that the churches and our church needs to receive today. And here at the end, as Christ gives his final message, he says to John, I am coming quickly. I am coming soon. But then I want you to notice in verse 13, he backs this up by saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, this is a strange way for people to speak. I've never heard someone look at me before and say, I am the first and the last we would look at someone who spoke like that like they were crazy. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am Alpha and Omega? Now, those words sound strange to us, and that's because they are. They are Greek letters of the alphabet. 
Alpha is a Greek letter and omega is a Greek letter. Now let me ask you this. Where does alpha occur in the Greek alphabet? Does anyone know? First letter, it's A in English. What do you think omega is in the Greek alphabet? The last. So in, in English, it would be Jesus saying, I am A and I am Z. Now, if someone were to say that to you, what would you think they were trying to communicate to you? I am A and I am Z. Well, he goes on to tell us, I am the first, I'm the beginning and the end, right? A, Z, beginning and end. And then to make it even more clear, he says, the first and the last. I am A and Z, I am beginning and end, I am first and last. Now, what do you think he meant? Well, here's one thing he meant. Back before, and in, in Revelation chapter 1, and then in Revelation chapter 21, someone we, we, we hear says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Do you know who it is? God. So when Jesus, at the end of this book, says, I am Alpha and Omega, who is he claiming to be? God. There are people who are following the Jehovah's Witness. Cult, really, is what it is, unfortunately. The Mormon religion, and they would say Jesus is not God. He never claimed to be. And you could take them right here to Revelation 22 and say, why is Jesus giving himself a name that applies to God? Not only that, we see in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 41, this same idea, God himself says, I'm the first and I'm with the last. And here Jesus is exactly the same thing again, saying, I'm God, I'm beginning and end. I'm first and last. Now, what does this mean if he is God? If he is saying, when the beginning was, I was there. And when the end will be, I am there. He is saying, I am at the center of all of human history. I'm the first and the last. And everything in between, I'm there. Now, do you know even our time, our calendar acknowledges this? We speak of a certain time of history and we say, B.C., 1000 BC. What does BC stand for in our calendar? Before Christ. Even our calendar recognizes that Jesus is at the center of all of human history. Now, even what do we say about after the time of Christ? We use the term AD. Do you know what AD stands for? It's a Latin phrase, Anno Domini. Do you know what Anno Domini says? In the year of our Lord. The year of our Lord. Who is that? It's Jesus. Before Christ, in the year of our Lord. All of human history is centered around Jesus because he is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and end. He is the first and last. He is at the center of all of human history. But he doesn't just want us to know this. Notice what he says then if we fast forward to verse 16. Jesus continues to speak and he says, I, Jesus have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Now, he wants you to know that his name is Jesus. You say, well, why does that matter? Everyone has a name. But no, he says, I, Jesus, am telling you these things. Well, let's go back to Matthew chapter 1. When was the name Jesus first identified or first introduced it was in Matthew 1 when Joseph, remember the fiance of Mary, she is now pregnant. Joseph says, that's not my kid. 
And he's wondering what to do. Do I divorce her? Do I, do I just cut it off? And Jesus sends an angel or God sends an angel to appear to him. And he says to Joseph, listen to these words. And she, Mary, shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Do you know what the name Jesus means? The name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation or Jehovah saves. And that's why he says, because he will save his people from their sins. What is the name Jesus inextricably connected with? Saving. So Jesus shows up first to say, I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. And then he says, who am I? I'm a savior is what I am. And not only that, I am God's savior. How do we know that? Because notice what he goes on to say here in verse 16. I am the root and the offspring of David. You say that again is strange. Now, what is an offspring? An offspring is the descendant of Lars. My son is my Offspring, So someone who comes after someone and descends from them. But then he says, I am the root. Does a root be come before the tree or after the tree? Before. What's he saying? David, the greatest king of the Old Testament, the greatest king of God's provision for his people Israel. Jesus says, I came before him and I was his root and I come after him. I am his descendant. What is he saying? I am the promised Messiah. I am the one who came from David as God has promised. Not only that, he says, I am the bright and morning star. How many of you here know what the morning star is? There's actually a planet that is called the morning star. Do you know that? Does anyone know the planet? Venus. Venus, actually, you can look it up. It's called the morning star. It's called the morning star because at certain times of the year, Venus will shine more brightly than any other planet. It'll be this brilliant light in the sky. Sometimes I've read it can even cast shadows. It is such a bright light here on Earth. And what Venus, why Venus is called the morning star, because during this time, it signals that the sun is about to come up. It's the light that is right before the rising of the sun. So what do you think Jesus is saying when he says, I am the bright and the morning star? He's saying, I am the one that is signifying that night is about over and the day is going to be here forever and ever. Jesus came as the bright and morning star to say history is almost done and God will bring the day of his light perfectly in a new heaven and a new earth. Do you see what he's saying? I am at the center. I am the one who has control of all human history. I am the star of this drama. You see, not always. It would be very rare that a director would be the star of the film, right? The director's the one behind the camera. But Jesus wants to make clear, yes, he's the director of this drama. He's the director of this film. All of it true. And then he steps out in front of the camera and he says, oh, by the way, I'm the one that you need to be focusing on across all of this story. I am the central character in the book of Revelation and indeed in all of Scripture. So notice the speaker. Jesus wants to make clear who is speaking and why his words should be relevant to all of us. But then notice here, secondly, the message. 
The message. What is the message that he is communicating? He says in verse 12 simply, I come quickly. You say, what does that mean? Quickly. You say, he said those words 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years doesn't sound like a really quick time. So what does he mean? We talked about this a little bit last Sunday evening. That what Jesus is intending us to realize is that he could come at any time. He could come imminently. His coming is, we would say, imminent. It is at the door. Now, what do we mean when we say that Jesus, and when Jesus himself says, he is coming? Well, you have to remember what John would have understood this to mean first. John, as I said, was one of Jesus' best friends. And Jesus, along with the, the other disciples, Acts 1 tells us that one day after Jesus had risen from the dead, he had appeared to John bodily. This is not something John is just making up in his head. He had seen Jesus alive after he had been crucified and buried. And now they go out to a hill outside Jerusalem and listen to what Acts says. And when Jesus had spoken these things, while they beheld, while they were looking on, he was taken up. It was like he just went up and on an elevator. And listen to this. And a cloud received him out of their sight. He went straight up into the air. And John saw it. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. I love how this says. Do you know what I would be doing? I would be looking up at heaven too. I mean, just put yourself in that situation. Suddenly Jesus just goes right up into the cloud. My mouth would be wide open. I'd be drooling all over the place. And I'd be looking up and saying, what on earth just happened? Well, this is exactly what was happening. And then suddenly two men stood by them in white apparel. Suddenly there are two men they've never seen before. And they're standing right there. And do you know what they said? They said, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Why are you standing staring up into heaven with open jaws? He said, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He's going to come back in the same way he went up. So what do you think John would think when Jesus looked at him and said, I am coming quickly. That was the message. He said, oh, just like I saw him go before. He's coming back. Now, this is filled out even by Jesus. John, again, would have heard this message in Matthew chapter 24 as Jesus was talking to his disciples before he died. He says, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes, all the nations of the earth will mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels from one end with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect, his people, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That was what Jesus said. John would have connected all of these things. He said, okay, now I get what Jesus is saying here. And if we have any question, Paul tells us what this event, this initial event is going to be like. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. If you have in your Bibles, you might just want to mark down a cross reference here. So the next time you read, you can go back to 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, for the Lord himself, speaking of Jesus, shall descend from heaven with a shout. What are we going to hear? We're going to hear a loud shout echoing across all this world. 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. We're going to hear this trumpet sound and the dead in Christ shall rise first. People are literally going to come right out out of their graves who knew Jesus and go to meet him in the air. And then it says this. And, and we, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. In other words, what Paul is telling us and what Jesus wanted to tell us is that the next great event in redemptive history is when Jesus calls his people out of this earth. He calls them out. And then, in our view, the story of Revelation will begin moving to its final fulfillment. Friend, that could happen before we leave church today. It could happen before you lay your head on the pillow to go to sleep tonight. Of course, it might not happen until you're dead. The point is, we don't know. We are just commanded to be ready because he is coming quickly. So notice this is what John is hearing. Jesus says, says, I am coming quickly. But then notice what else he says here in verse 12. And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Now we think about a reward and we think about it just positively, right? I'm going to give you a reward means I'm going to give you something good. But this idea means something far more. When Jesus says, my reward is with me, he means I'm going to give you something based on what you've done. And it might be good and it might be bad. In other words, I might come with a blessing for you and I might come with a judgment for you. It is going to depend on your work. Now, do you know the Bible is consistent with all of this? Do you know the Bible tells us that every single one of us will stand before Jesus one day for judgment? Revelation chapter 20, if you just want to turn back a couple chapters, might only be a page in your Bible. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, John sees this great white throne. And he says, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, now listen to this, according to their works, what they did, they will be judged. Now friends, that's a sobering word, isn't it? I don't know if any of you have ever stood before a judge on this, in this life, in a courtroom, someone in a black robe whose job it is to tell you what your sentence will be. It's a sobering thought. How much more sobering to stand before one who knows everything you've ever done. Before whom all the works of of your life will be written in a book. And he will judge you according to those. You say, isn't this just for those who don't know Jesus and whose sins haven't been forgiven? The answer, friend, is no. You may not be standing before him in Revelation 20 at that great white throne judgment, but you will stand before him to be judged. You say, how do you know? If you have any question, write again in your Bible, this little margin, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Listen to what Paul says. 
For we, he's including himself there, Paul, the great apostle, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That's you. That's me. Friend, what Jesus is claiming here is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, is complete control over your eternal destiny and mine. That means Buddhists are going to stand before Jesus and Hindus and Muslims and atheists and skeptics and professing Christians. We're all going to stand before him and his reward is with him and he is going to give us according to our works. You say, wait, I thought I was saved by faith alone. Are you telling me that I have to work hard to get into heaven and this is going to be balanced? No. If your name is in the book of life solely by, what, by your trust in Jesus Christ for your eternal life, you are saved. But that doesn't mean that when Jesus doesn't come back, you're not going to be rewarded according to what you did. You may have eternity in heaven, in this new heaven and new earth, and yet Jesus may have a reward for you according to what you have done that is bad. In fact, we read elsewhere in Scripture, Paul tells us of those whose entire life work will be burned up in front of them. It it, it will be as if their entire life was wasted. And Scripture says of that person, they will be saved for eternity, but as by fire. As by fire, their life will have been wasted. Again, these are sobering words, but what Jesus wants us again to take is that he has control of our eternal destiny, of all of ours, of every man who has ever lived, because he is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and last. But friend, there's another sobering word here. Let's keep on going to verse 14, will you? Revelation 22 and verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. I want to pause here for just one very brief footnote. You may have a question there because I just read these words, blessed are they that do his commandments. And you may have a Bible this morning that says something like this, blessed are they who have washed their robes. I just want to address that very briefly. There are textual variants. Again, I don't want to make our heads spin here. I just want to say that our Bible has come to us from people who transcribed it, wrote it down in hand from generation to generation. Their Bible was, if you will, passed down. And there are some ancient manuscripts that have the rendering that we have here. Blessed are they that do his commandments. It's only a very small change in one Greek word that would render it blessed are those who wash their robes. And that could be um, a Bible that is typically the one that is used in more modern translations. Let me just make this comment. First, if we were really to look at this biblically, both shoes would fit when it comes to the doctrine of Scripture. Both of these are perfectly true and they don't change anything about the doctrine that we hold to and cling to. And that's why I think on these issues of textual variance, which text are we going to go from? We should be 
humble, we should be meek, we should be gentle, and we should not be mean-spirited or nasty. But I just want to say this, what text we choose is important. Because it does change, indeed, whether this verse says, blessed are they that do his commandments, or blessed are they that wash their robes. And I just point out what Jesus says here in verse 18. He says, I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. No, I don't believe that if we are going from the wrong text, Jesus means to say here that he's going to take away our place out of the book of life. I think he's clearly talking about an intentional kind of bad faith manipulation of his words. But I think those two verses do tell us his words are important. Amen. We should be sober about those. And indeed, one reason we continue to use the King James Version of the Bible is because we believe that this textual source of the King James is likely to be the right one, the one that is closest to the early the earliest source of that manuscript. Again, I just have that as a footnote in case you are wondering or curious about that and don't think I'm deceiving you. Verse 14, let's start with this substantively. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life. Now you might be saying, I'm already scratching my head. I thought again I was saved by faith and now you're telling me my right to the tree of life, my right to enter into that new city Jerusalem is dependent on whether I did his commandments you say I break his commandments every day so do I what are his commandments love God with all your heart soul mind and strength do you do that perfectly every day what is his second great commandment love your neighbor love the people around you as yourselves do you do that perfectly every day so if Jesus is saying here, you're only getting into heaven if you do his commandments, all of us are guilty. No, what Jesus is not saying here is, I'm going to judge whether you go into heaven by how well you did at obeying. But here's what he is saying. He is saying this. The old Puritans used to put it like this. It is faith alone that saves in other words, what's the only way you can go to heaven if you place your trust and dependence in Jesus Christ for what he did on your behalf and trust him to forgive you of your sins? That's the only way. But the Puritans did say this, the faith that saves is not alone. It's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. And it is consistent with the rest of the teaching of our Bible that God expects that when he has created a new work in your life, he has saved you, he has put the Holy Spirit within you, that you're going to be different. We used to sing this. If any of you ever rode bus three with me back in the day, we used to sing this little song. The things I used to do, don't do them anymore. Why? There's been a great change since I've been born again. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. And notice what he then says. He says in verse 15, for without, on the outside, are dogs. Man's best friend, those cute, furry, four-footed, four-legged creatures. No, he's not talking about dogs, the animals. This is a, a word used in the Bible to describe people who are morally wicked, evil people. For without are dogs and sorcerers, those given to witchcraft, and whoremongers, these are sexually immoral people. Not only that, and murderers, 
people who kill other people. But John tells us in 1 John, those who hate other people, whose lives are given to hatred and bitterness toward other people. And idolaters, those who worship false gods and false religions. And whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Those who are deceivers. They're outside. They're not coming in to that new heaven and that new earth. Let's pause there for a second, friends. Jesus is telling us that our salvation should reflect itself in the way we live. Friends, we should realize that in, I would say, every church, there are those who are deceivers. They come to church on Sunday morning and they wear the clothes. They know when to say amen and they know what page on the hymn book to turn to. But they are actors. That's what a hypocrite is. People talk about hypocrites in church. The word hypocrite is literally a stage actor. It's not people who are trying to do right and they end up doing wrong. That's all of us. If that were a hypocrite, every single one of us would be hypocrites. But what hypocrite is and what Jesus is talking about here is someone who's an actor. They will come and appear one way intentionally, but they are living a different life outside of this church and they know it. Maybe that life is of willful sexual immorality. Maybe that life is a form of deception in other ways. Maybe that life is in dishonesty in some other ways. And they come here and smile in every church. But they love and make a lie. Their life is a deception. Friends, I would just warn you today with Jesus Christ, if I'm talking about you today, do not think. Do not think for a moment that you coming here to church on Sunday morning and knowing to say all the right things will help you when Jesus comes with your reward. Do not think that you can profess what you know inwardly is a lie. No, I'm not talking about all of us, those of us who say, God, help me to do better than I'm doing today. No, that's what God calls all of us to do, to seek his forgiveness when we go astray. But friends, those who love and make a lie, my Bible says, are on the outside. Because God expects that his salvation in your life will make a change. Maybe I could, maybe I could describe it to you this way. I want you to think of when I moved into my house many years ago, there was a small little apple tree out in that yard. And how did I know it was an apple tree? I only knew it was an apple tree because the previous owner said, that's an apple tree. It was just small. It didn't have any fruit on it. So I said, okay, it's an apple tree. But how did I actually know it was an apple tree? Because maybe a year or two after we were there, apples started growing on it. And I said, oh, that's an apple tree. Now, let me ask you this question. This is very important. Did that become an apple tree when it started producing apples? Is that when it became an apple tree? No, it was an apple tree from the moment it was put in the ground with the seed of an apple tree. But how did all of us know it was an apple tree? When there were apples on the tree. Friends, you don't become a Christian by doing good things. You don't become a Christian when the apples start showing up on your tree. You become a Christian because God planted the seed of his son in your heart and you accepted him by faith. But how are you going to prove, how are you going to reveal to everyone that you are an apple tree when there are apples that show up on your tree? You say, what kind of apples? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, 
meekness. We can go down the list of what the fruits of the Spirit are. No, I'm not talking about, hey, I read my Bible, I must be a Christian. I'm talking about God is changing your character from the inside out, and it's changing the way you and I live. Blessed are they that do his commandments. No, not because they earned their way to heaven, but because the outflow of their life was a demonstration to everyone that Jesus was on the inside changing them. Friends, my question for you this morning is if we were to look at the fruit of your life over the last week, all of it, not just the public facing, all of it, what would Jesus say about the fruit? Would he say, ah, my character is coming out. They looked like me this week in the way they lived. May that be the desire of all of our hearts. Jesus says, I'm coming. And I'm going to have a, a reward for every single person according to his works. So here's the speaker. Here's the message. And then just finally and briefly, there's an invitation. Let's look at this last message of Jesus together. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches, in our church. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Listen to this, friends. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Now, do you see that's a little ambiguous? Who's the spirit? The spirit is the Holy Spirit. Who's the bride? We've seen in this book that the bride is the church of Christ across all the world. His people in this world. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Who are they saying come to? They might be saying, come to Jesus. Come, hurry up. You said you were coming quickly. We'll talk about that more tonight. That's going to be the subject of our message tonight. But they might, do you know who they might also be saying it to? People in this earth. Why don't you come? You see, listen. And let him that heareth say, come. In other words, you should be saying, come. And listen to this. And let him that is a thirst, let him that is thirsty, come. Say, what does that mean? And whosoever will, whoever wants to, let him take the water of life freely. That's an invitation. You say, Jesus is at the center of all of human history. He holds our eternal destiny. And what's his invitation? It says, come. Come where? Come to me. Why? Because I'll give you water if you're thirsty. Friends, we can't possibly understand the force of this statement in the modern world in which we live in a first world country like America. Do you know none of us, I suspect, have to think about where we're going to get water next? Why? You just go and turn the faucet on. And there's all the water you need coming out right there. If you're thirsty, you just go get a cup of water and you drink. Do you know across almost all of human history it wasn't like this? And do you know even around the world today it's not like this? Do you know 1.1 billion people in the earth today, it's been estimated lack access access to safe drinking water around the world? 1.1 billion people. And not only that, a total of 2.7 billion people find water difficult to access for at least one month a year. 2.7 billion people. They would understand this in a way that you and I don't. Why? Because water is maybe our most fundamental basic need. You can go weeks without eating food, but you can go maybe two, three, maybe four days, maybe a little more without drinking water. 
your body starts shutting down very quickly. I read a story recently of a man named Chaz Powell. He was this kind of explorer in his late 30s from the UK, and he went to Africa. He decided that he was going to walk the entire length of the Zambezi River by himself, a solo adventure, a solo expedition. And he tells the story that one day he found trouble as he was going through and he decided to take a different trek. And he was dependent on water, the the water of the Zambezi to stay alive. And suddenly he found himself on a cliff, hundreds of meters, hundreds of feet, maybe up to a thousand feet down to the river. And he was out of water. Not only that, it was well over a hundred degrees at the time. And he had a cliff below him of getting to the water. He ended up, he tells the story that um, he felt himself getting dehydrated so much so that he even drank his own urine to try to stay alive. And then he realized he was going to die. And here's what he did. He said, I could sit here and die or I could at least go over the cliff and die. And he decided he was going to climb down that cliff to get to the water And down he went hundreds of feet. He says at one point he slipped and fell 15 feet, cutting his nose. At one point he got to a ledge and he passed out and woke up again. He got to the bottom. He made it to the bottom, bruised, bloody, battered, and he sat there in the shade and rehydrated at the river. Friends, that's what people will do when they are desperately thirsty. He said, I can't describe how thirsty I was. Now I want you to hear with new ears what Jesus says. Are you thirsty? Come to me. What will I give you? I will give you water. I'll give you the water of life and you won't have to climb down a cliff for it. I'll give it to you freely. There's no cost associated with it. I'll give it to you. You say, what is he saying? He's talking to all of us. He's saying, are you thirsty this morning? Say, what do you mean? I mean, think of when you're really thirsty. You have to get water. You're not satisfied. You can't be satisfied until you get it. And friends, it has been the testimony of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people since Jesus first said these words that they have said, you know what, Jesus, you're right, I'm thirsty because I've been looking for ways to be satisfied. I've been looking for ways to be content in my life. I've been pursuing every path that the world tells me there's a river that I can drink from. And then when I taste it, I'm still thirsty. I get the job that I wanted, and suddenly I find I'm not satisfied with that. I get, the, I get the romantic partner, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the husband or wife that I thought I needed, and suddenly I'm, I'm still thirsty. I have all the friends that I want. I've got all the money that I want, and I'm still thirsty. And Jesus says, if that's you this morning, friend, his answer to you is simply come. You say, but I'm too bad. I've done too many things. I'm the murderer. I'm the deceiver. Come just like you are. Are you a drunkard? Come like you are. Are you a drug addict? Come like you are. Are you a sinner? Come like you are. Because Jesus says, whosoever will, whosoever wants to, can come. No questions asked. Isn't it fitting that the message of the Bible from Jesus to us should close with these words? Isn't it fitting that the last message that Jesus gives to us is an invitation to say, I'm coming and I'm going to have a reward with me and your destiny is going to be in my hands. And if that terrifies you, then just come to me 
and I'll give you water of life that's free and that's final and that will satisfy you in this life and eternally in the life to come. Friends, my question for you this morning is, are you hearing Jesus's final message? Are you someone who's professing faith this morning, but you know your life is a lie? Then it's time to come to him and drink again. It's time to come to him and say, I need to get right with you. But friend, if you've never tasted that water of life, if you've never experienced it before, his message to you is the same. Come, come and drink. Just come and take of me. I'm going to give it to you for free. You just have to believe and you just have to ask. Jesus is the central character in all of human history. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He holds all of our eternal destiny in his hand. And that means today, what you do with Jesus will depend and will shape all of your eternal destiny. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this invitation of Jesus Whosoever will, let him come to me. Let him take the water of life freely. Father, you know who's here this morning and who is within the sound of my voice. And you know what they've done with you and what their eternal destiny will be. Father, I pray that people all around this building all of those within the sound of my voice would come to Jesus once again this morning. Let's pause. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that hears say, come. Maybe it's time for you to come again this morning.